Welcome to episode 8 of the Counterforce Podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to Leviathan off the new James album, Living in Extraordinary Times. It's one of the best albums of 2018. That's one of my favorite songs released this year. And it was my pleasure to talk with James singer Tim Booth for this episode of the Counterforce, an artist whose work I've admired for decades now. I saw James on the Laid Tour in 1994 at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut, and it's still one of the best shows I've ever seen. Their version of Say Something that night was particularly moving, but what really impressed me was how they stretched out the songs and took them in new directions, and we talk about this in the interview, and how this is what makes live music so exciting and worthwhile. Tim and I also have a shared interest in meditation and bodywork, and it was great to talk to him about how these things relate to creativity. Definitely get the bonus track version of the new record. You'll want to hear those three songs at the end, and I got the scoop on those from Tim. So without further ado, tell me about when you first fell in love with music. Really fell in love with it is Patti Smith's Horses. Um, I was... I've told the story before, but it, it's pretty apocryphal. Um, I was uh, at an English boys' Victorian boarding school, um, which was like a Lord of the Flies prison situation, where they, they, the other kids are, are like the wardens. And um, you're called scum and new scum for the first couple of years. That's your name by the teachers as well as the students. And I, I hated this place. And you're that locked up there the whole time and every hour is accountable to the teachers. And I, um, I'd heard horses the week before and I didn't think she could sing very well. Um, just once briefly, it was so radically different to what was going on in the day. Now it doesn't sound so radical, of course. And, um, that night I got a call from my mum saying my dad was in hospital and he was having an operation, a prostate operation, and he may not come out of the anesthetic because he was like 75. He may not live. But I couldn't come home. Um, I had to stay there. And I was like pretty battered by this and had to kind of keep a poker face because in that place you do, you can't show fear or tears or weakness. And I went to bed, you know, you lock in your bedrooms by quarter to 10, silence at 10.30, you know, lights out at 10 o'clock. And I'm lying on my bed, not being able to sleep because I think my dad's going to die. And um, I, I sneak down through the corridors in the darkness and I go into this study that was my study. And I put on horses for some weird reason, put on headphones. And about the third song is... His father died and left him alone on that New England farm. 
the little boy was just standing there. It was as if someone had spread butter on all the fine points of the stars, because when he looked up, they started to slip. And it's a <clears throat> 12 minute on that record, although it goes on many, many minutes longer live. Improvisation about a boy losing his father. And it rocked me to the core. I'd never heard music like this. I'd never heard something so wild and crazy. And obviously there's something that connected to my story in that moment, but reached, was artistic and vulnerable and dangerous and reached out to a 16 year old boy across the oceans, you know, and it was, I think that was it. I think that was probably the moment when unconsciously I went, this sounds like a good job. <laughs> I think I'd like to be a singer. <laughs> I think I'd like to be this person who, who can like comfort a small, frightened, terrified boy thousands of miles away with something that is so whew, not even direct, not even saying it's okay, but taking on this kind of mad artistic journey that connects at a deeper level than the, than the conscious mind. So I think that's when I fell in love with music. Wow. Are you a big believer in synchronicity like that? Because that seems pretty heavy. I have. I, I, one day I'll write a novel on synchronicity. Yeah. The, all the best things happen to me with synchronicity. And a couple of bad things too. Um, but synchronicity plays a big part in my life. So when did you realize you could sing? Probably about 10 years into James. Um, it, I, I mean, um, I, I really didn't like my voice very much for about at least seven years of James. I, I, I thought I was a good lyricist so I could justify it because some of my favorite singers were not great singers, but good lyricists like Leonard Cohen and, you know, Patti Smith. Technically not great, but credible lyricists. So... I, I was able to kind of not let my critic destroy me on it, but I don't think I really liked my voice for about seven or eight years, to be truthful. Wow. So when did you fall in love with dance? Ah. At the boarding school, there was so much kind of, especially during like uh, puberty, teenage years, as my wife says, when we're bringing up our son who's now in puberty she said tim you didn't have puberty you were in prison and it was like oh yeah i don't understand this at all um so and she's right and what i used to do though was i'd lock the study door put on music really loud be a tiny little room and throw myself around the room in frustration or anger or terror or whatever was moving through me at the time in this, in this situation I found myself in and I just dance and, and, um, and it, 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 and then someone will walk in and sometimes I could just continue and fuck them. And other times I would stop. Um, so I had dance from 14 as this kind of release of frustration, I think, to um, the imprisonment. Um, and, then, and then I remember there was a school disco when I was about 16, and all the boys were terrified of dancing with the girls. And I'd go out there and I'd start throwing myself around and just did the same thing I did in the study, but a little more in a courtship ritual focus. And it kind of worked. And I could see all the cool kids who would normally not give me the time of day would come up and go, how did you do that? What, what did you do then? Like, I didn't know you could do that. And, and they would, they'd take the piss out of me. But at the same time, there was some grudging respect. Um, and so I went, ah, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and just kept on doing it. Nice. But tell me about five rhythms. I don't want to talk about five rhythms. Um, uh, on its own, because I was with the founder of the Five Rhythms in the 90s, and I really left in the, in the late, well, in the early 2000s. Um, but I, I, I loved her, and we were beloved friends. I don't really appreciate where the organization's gone now. 
but this okay. but it's a great system and there are some great teachers there as there are in another system called medicine movement and open floor um and so i can't kind of recommend a particular system of movement i can recommend teachers um because okay. they really vary um i teach it here in los angeles with my wife my wife is an incredible teacher she's in australia right now touring and she has packed rooms weeping crying raging going through all kinds of emotional waves with her and life transformative three-day experiences of dancing and maybe writing maybe sharing what, what you experience it's like realizing that dance can be a technology can be a tool to unlock the psyche that those that's what i'm interested in rather than a particular system um i'll be teaching it tomorrow night i taught 150 people on saturday i do it whenever i'm back in la um and then on tour i dance on stage and go into trance states um because that's a it's a beautiful thing to do it's like going to a medita meditative state or or can be wilder than that more passionate but um it's very healing and it's just something I've always been, you know, one of my prime directives, I think, when I came into this planet is to try and work out what the fuck is going on and how best to uncover one's self. Because the little self is the conscious self. That's 5% of where our brain goes. 95% goes to the unconscious process of the body, which are much more interesting to me. Um, and much more expansive and you can tap into them through drugs you, know, you can tap into them through meditation through dance um, I don't often use drugs because I have an inherited liver disease which has probably saved my life as a singer in a band um, as I've watched most people around me go down in flames at various points uh, in time um, and I think that that liver disease is what led me into alternative medicine and meditation when I was 21 in the 80s, early 80s, when people weren't doing that kind of thing. That thing was seen as completely wacky and cultish and um, was not cool. Certainly to be a rock singer in a band and meditate was unheard of. And we had to keep quiet about it almost. Uh, now I don't give a shit. Who knows? Um those are the things that interest me, really, is getting under the surface. Yeah, I read uh, in The Guardian about, recently you mentioned about the liver bringing you to Chinese medicine. It took me to, every, quite frankly, I think that was a, it was a gift of an illness. Um, I had it for 11 years, from 11 till 21, and then it was undiagnosed. I was bright yellow uh, with jaundice, and they called me Chinky, was my nickname at school, my nice little racist nickname. Um, and then at 21, I nearly died from it. And that's when they took it seriously. And Western medicine had nothing for it. And, um, and so I threw myself into all kinds of alternative, wacky health regimes, some of which worked, some of which didn't. But ultimately, kind of pretty much cured it. It comes up now and again if I get really stressed or can't sleep for a few days or get jet lag. Um, or if I take indulge in something which i i hardly ever do you know. but if i go okay it's time it's time do you still meditate oh yeah what kind of meditation do you do uh it's not really got a label um but i meditate on a it's a thing i found in when i was 21 that again kind of saved my life because um, i was quite ready to check out after 11 years of illness and um, it's essentially I meditate on a, a light and a sound uh, that I can see and hear and that I can go into and dissolve into. I'm interested in how these things relate to creativity. Do you find yourself having creative artistic ideas when you enter into like a trance state or does that come afterward? Uh, often during. And so sometimes I have to pen and paper while I meditate. Because um, I allow that, that rude intrusion, um, but um, but just being genuinely in those states, 
is so much more creative. It's so much more easy to tap into creativity. I, I, I read the whole of the Booth and the Bad Angel, the album with Angela Badlamenti, dancing every day for six hours. And then in the evening, I'd write with him and improvise. And we wrote the album kind of in about 10 days. Not, not all the lyrics. I had to go back and get some lyrics. But all the melodies, all the, all the musical ideas, all the outlines of the songs. And it went so quickly because I was dancing for six hours. I was just gone. So the minute he started playing, I could immediately start improvising words and melodies and sounds. And, and it was just a joy. And I've done that a number of times. And whenever I get stuck for anything, I just go and dance for an hour or so or I'll, I'll meditate. And it usually unstucks me pretty quickly. Do you remember what you were doing when the many faces refrain came to you? I don't. It could have come even in the first jam, you know. Um, I should probably go back and check that out because um, I get some of the lyrics in the first improvisation. And I have a feeling, I could even look it up on my computer, but it'd probably take me 10 minutes uh, to find it. Um, I have a feeling it probably came in the very first jam, um, which meant I marked that song and said, to, I'd have said to Mark, can you mark that song? I want to edit that song. I edited that song. Um, and I, I think it was because I had that lyric and I knew that lyric was going to be a big connection, that people would relate to that lyric. And they have in a big way, right? They have, yeah. And more to come, I think. It's um, it's, it's the only antidote, really. Um, it's the only antidote for for the diversiveness that we face right now. Um, the kind of nationalism and the separation that's going on that won't solve the real global problems of things like global warming, which can't be solved if everyone just retreats to their own country and says, we're, we're just going to look after ourselves right now. Um, and if we don't solve that, we're, we're, we're screwed. So that's what's being called upon us as human beings right now. It's to find that unity and to work together what i love about the new record is there's such a a positivity to it um it's very romantic but not in any sort of escapist sort of way there's like this true yearning for love and like a belief that that will prevail over the evils we face right now you know i i read yesterday lyndon johnson did this um President Lyndon Johnson did this amazing advert. I was reading Noah Harari's new book, you know, the guy who wrote Sapiens. And um, he did an advert in about 65 where a nuclear bomb goes off and it's all the kids, you know, children, innocent children being destroyed. And he comes on and says, it's only love that's going to save us now. The president of the United States did an advert where he said that. This was before... The summer of love before everyone said this was a hippie idea and it's the truth it's like we <laughs> it's the real bottom line um so yes i do have a belief in love in that sense that and we i don't know some days i'm not optimistic when i look at the the amount of people not wanting to hear this or not wanting to believe in climate change or the people putting out false information. You know, I, I'm, I'm getting to a larger political picture right now, which is, say, for example, Russia. There are some countries where climate change, they see it as a, a, probably a benefit to their country. Russia is one of them. They don't have too many ports. So then that flooding is not the big issue for them. They see that Siberia might become a, a, a bread, the breadbasket of Europe. It might become the competition for California, which California will become a desert <clears throat> if global warming is true. And they, they obviously rely upon oil as their main financial income for the country. So they don't want to stop the oil industry and, and, and dirty fuel. They, they want it to continue. So Russia aren't going to come on board with this because it doesn't benefit them. Um, Whereas China is, they've got lots of sea territories and flooding and Japan and, you know, and America is being manipulated by Russia quite a lot now at the moment. And Brexit 
Russia, those Russian interference in Brexit. And you can see that there's so much that benefits Russia from this diversiveness, from this nationalism that they're helping to create, this fermentation of discord online. You know, when, when the recent studies show that, say, when the Russians start tweeting or um, doing Facebook posts on, say, abortion, they'll write extreme posts both sides of the issue just to stir up discord. And that's what they want. They want America not to come together. They want it to be separate. They want it to be like div div divided because that makes a weakened enemy. It makes a weakened NATO if Britain leave the EU, a weakened Europe. And Putin has ideas of the Russian Empire again, quite publicly stated. So I do see a bigger, a bigger kind of Putin objective to a lot of the diversiveness that's going on right now, which may make me a paranoid conspiracy <laughs> theorist. But he's actually stated quite a lot of it publicly, so I don't think so. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, there, there are people who benefit from countries retreating to their own lands and not seeing the world as globally connected and we are globally connected. We are psychically connected <laughs> to each other, whether we like it or not. But we are also globally connected. If global warming is, is true and 99% of scientists and the 1% who don't agree with it are mainly connected to the oil industry, that kind of gives away what we're talking about here. Um, so if global warming is true, we have the only way we can get to it now, and it has to happen now, um, is, is if we're working together globally. And there are some countries that don't benefit from that and will want that not to happen. The oil producing companies, countries, basically. A lot of it, uh, is really about personal responsibility. It's, it, it's not to some degree because it has to work at a global issue. As a, all we can do personally, yes, we can put pressure on our politicians. Yes, we can, you know, great Black Lives Matter, um, the women's movement, the kids from Florida, the, you know, all the kind of Greenpeace, all the global pressure groups, fantastic. And that's really the only way these things are going to change, those global issues. Yeah, then we work on, upon ourselves personally then that's a personal issue about how we interact with our world. But, you know, we can't do much individually. It is a global issue. That right. is unfortunately the reality. I was going to say the um, born of frustration keeps coming into my head, especially this year with every, I mean, all the politicians just blaming each other. I mean, well, we have children in cages. Let's just get them out of the cages first, you know. And I stop talking about who's to blame and all that counts is how to change. Yeah. Yeah. But if we get them out, if the Republicans get them out of the cages, then they have to admit it was going on. If, if they, if they, you know, they're not even admitting to this Puerto Rican death figure from the, from the, you know, it's just mind blowing the level of denial that's going on here, you know, and I have a line about denial. I've forgotten what it is. Black Lives Matter, shoot on sight. You know, we all live in denial. And it's like, it's incredible, really. And the Republicans want to look the other way because they're benefiting from Trump. They're getting their judges. They're getting some of their, um, you know, some of the crazy, they're getting rid of Obamacare or they're trying to starve it. And um, so they'll support Trump, even though they probably suspect that he has Russian collusion in their heart of hearts they have to suspect he's colluded with russia because he's publicly kind of asked russia to help and his son had a meeting with the russians so you don't need much more evidence than that really if you're being objective and unbiased when did you move to california is that under obama 10 years ago okay mm -hmm. no before just before oh so when bush was in southern bush was yeah <laughs> I've always wanted to live in California, America. This country always called me. The land always called me. And the, the people always called me. It was like, I, I, I love Americans. I really enjoy, especially being amongst kind of West Coast or East Coast Americans. The intellect. I like the, I like the optimism of the country. 
um, as opposed to, say, England, where a lot of the intellectuals are really pessimistic. <laughs> and I am optimistic, you know, that's what you point out. And um, it's hard being an optimistic, intelligent human being in Europe or in, in certainly in England. Um, that's that almost an oxymoron. But it's not here. Mm. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I've traveled a lot recently and I really love the different, all the people of America is, really have a lot to offer that has nothing to do with our leaders. Nothing to do with the leaders. But that's the first rule of any country. I went to China and the Chinese people were so friendly. And of course you go, oh, I've been judging them on their damn leaders. You know, and it's like they were so vulnerable and open and honest with me. Um, and we just have to keep remembering, you know. We just kind of go... That's the country. Russia is Putin. That's the face of it. Trump is the face of America right now. It's like, no thanks. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's bullshit. The people are very different. One of the things I love about James is that a big part of it is taking chances live and with each record. What's the feeling you get from this? I mean, how much is it confidence in what you're doing and how much is it the sort of fear that comes into entering uncertain territory it's a it's a, a heady cocktail of both um there's definite fear that goes on um if not terror sometimes when we really don't know what the fuck we're doing but then you know when things go wrong it's always okay it's like we've we've learned this again and again and again there's always even even if it really falls apart and we just tell the audience and laugh People kind of like that. They don't see that often in a concert because they see over-rehearsed theatre acts that do the same set every night and might even have the same in-between song raps every night. Musicians have fucked up, man. They've really gone down the wrong route. It's like we have to be, especially live, where now everything... You know, musicians make their money from live music now, much more than from, you know, unless you're one of the big, big sellers. Most musicians, it's live. Well, how are you people going to be interested in seeing you more than once if your set is the same, if what you do is so conformist? Much better to, like, have these random things going off and to not know what song you're going to play next and to improvise within a song that you're playing. So it's totally different from one night to the next. So our sets are totally different from one night to the next. And um, so we have people who come and see us a hundred times, you know, quite a lot of people who come and see us a hundred times because they don't, they want to see this level. You know, we're not the Grateful Dead. We don't do long guitar solos and all that kind of stuff. It's more about, actually, can you find a whole new piece of music to add on to the song? It's like, whoa, we've gone into a weird area here. I'll see if I can come up with a new vocal melody on a, on a song like Sound, a hit song. I did that a few weeks ago, came up with a whole new vocal melody. I came up with a vocal, new vocal melody on a song that's 32 years old. It's kind of, it's fun. And it reinvigorates the songs. Otherwise, you end up, you know, repeating and repeating until the thing loses any kind of potency. I saw recently that you pulled out Top of the World. Yeah. Probably, like, also no rehearsal. I don't think we played it for years, but we know that one so well that we can go. Like, we literally, I think we were backstage and we said, oh, let's play Top of the World. It was like the encore, you know, and we were asked, we don't want to go back with a hit. What do we go back with? Oh, right, let's do Top of the World. Okay, so... You know, the, th the four of us who play Top of the World looked at each other like, can we play this? Yes, we can play this. And we go and do it. Other times we sound check a song if we haven't played it for a long time, just to check we, we actually know the working parts. Top of the World. God. Well, it was written at the time when I was leaving my partner and leaving my son. And we, I was becoming, I became famous just after I'd left them. It was really confusing time because this positive thing was happening. And also my personal life was a car crash. And I was very questioning of myself and my motives and my, why I was leaving. And, you know, and actually in the end, it was exactly the right thing to do. I'm very happy with that choice. 
there was no other choice that could be made. But at the time, I was beating myself up for it quite a lot. And that's in that song. What about Crescendo? Another one from that era. It's a song I've always loved. That was a kind of an improv. I mean, every song we wrote, we write through improvisation. A few of us will get in a room. At the moment, it's four. And we improvise together. And then we we chop it up and go, okay, this bit might work with this bit. Let's try joining this onto here. And then we try and structure something. And Crescendo was a jam. And I just went, I quite like the sounds. I don't, I'm not going to write lyrics for this, except for that one bit of lyric, which came in the first jam. Um, I'm afraid of loneliness swallowing me. Um, and so it's, it's the jam vocal, basically, um, with one, even the first jam lyric. Um, and that's, so that's an improvised song that's been cut up into pieces. And that's that song. Tell me about Leviathan from the new one. That was two different songs. Um, two different jams, which we hardly ever managed to find a way to bring to manage to bring two chunks. We had a great chorus in one song, and we had a great verse in another. And me and Mark had been working with that great verse to try and find a way to make it work, but it hadn't got a chorus. That kind of take my hand, one, two, three. That section we had that in another song, and it was like beautiful, but nothing to go with it. And Charlie Andrews said, "I think we could." cannibalize this jam which was another song i actually did like but we meant we had to get rid of its verse and we could use its chorus so we put together two very separate jams which is unusual for us the lyrics are um through love or through sex jumping through some kind of portal some kind of portal of self-discovery that's what the song's about so all that, I just got rumbled online by some, by some tweets where this, this woman said, when you sing Ride Inside Your Starship, never the same trip, hold me in a tight grip, healing for the lovesick, are you talking about vaginas? <laughs> and I went, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and hence the line, you know, fucking love, fucking and love, before they drop the bomb, make sure we get enough. Um, so yeah, that, that one's Got quite a lot to do with fucking, really, and love. Probably should have been called fucking and love. But the band, and Saul in particular, is squeamish about um, me swearing. They really, he really tries to, you know, really hated it in Living Extraordinary Times. Fuck you, you know, I want to fuck you and fucking love. He'll really go, I'm not going to play it live if you do that. And I'm like... Come on, fuck off. He did it with Laid, for God's sake. She only comes when she's on top. So I have to, I know I have to ignore him at that point because it's like he'd lose my best lyrics. Tell me about filming the coming home video. You're quite emotional in it. Yeah, terrible. How can a man be so emotional? <laughs> yeah, I wrote that lyric. Like me and my son, my, my younger son, my other son, you know, he, he got the worst of it, really, when James, I was traveling lots. My youngest son, I only go away for three weeks lots. And I thought that was manageable to us both. And then every so often, I have to go away for longer. And he would, aged four or five, say, I'm okay, Dad. I'm, I'm fine you've been away. It's all right. Don't worry. He was lying to me to take care of me so I wouldn't be upset. And one day I was away for a long period and I came home and the grief he showed me and the love he showed me. And then he had repercussions too about kind of a fear of me going away afterwards for about a year. And I realized he'd been protecting me. And we, I think we both do that. We, when I'm away, we almost don't want to talk to each other because it makes it feel bad. We have such a, such a strong connection. And so I wrote that lyric and I didn't really realize how emotional that lyric was. I kind of thought, oh yeah, but me and Luca have it, you know, under control. <laughs> and then I sang it and like burst into tears while singing it in the studio. And it'd be like, oh, I seem to be a bit more affected by this than I realized. And then, you know, a few other times the same reaction has happened and, and so, hence the video. Um, it was like, well, let's capture that raw. Let's capture actually what's going on underneath 
us, me and Luca dealing with this <laughs> and, and saying we're okay with it. And so I filmed it at the raw state of just feeling what has been hidden. And, and that's kind of how a lot of my lyric writing works. I write unconsciously sometimes, really knowing what the impact of the song is. It's almost like the unconscious teaches me, actually, this means this to you. You haven't clocked on. Because when you go to an English boarding school, you learn to suppress your emotions, to hide them. And that becomes, unfortunately, a training that is quite hard to shake sometimes. And um, so sometimes you really emotionally don't know what's going on. And, and that's been the kind of journey for me is to try and get more back in touch with who I am and what's going on. Uh, and that, again, dance, meditation, lyrics, they all feed that unraveling, um, that discovery for me. I love the metaphor at the end when she's standing on the guitar, but it doesn't break. And then she's strumming it. It's, it really says a lot. Yeah, it's beautiful. She couldn't break it. Yeah, they actually wanted to break it. She couldn't. Oh, really? We went with the other, with the other way, basically. Tell me about the three demos that are the bonus tracks, uh, Moving Car, Overdose, and Trouble. I thought those were great. Essentially, I wanted a double album. And so we recorded, we really, we had about 30 songs that I thought were good 18, 19, 20 of them were really strong and could have made a, a double album, a great double album. No one's done a great double album for years. And the record company wouldn't finance it. And that they kind of, they didn't discover we were recording a double album until we were way over budget because it obviously took longer. Um, and then they punished us with like, we've had part of the video coming home being me in front of a camera. I, I was going to commission an animation, but they withdrew all our video budgets because we went so over budget recording 19 songs. And, um, a few of them never got really worked on in the studio and those three are three of them, but they were as good as really, I think as anything on the record, but they just never got put through Charlie and Benny and worked on and really worked on hard. They were just more like the jams that we chopped up and I wrote lyrics for and uh, sang again and people played on them again, but we didn't put it through the process of Charlie and Benny, which is the album tracks. Um, so my dream for a double album got thwarted basically. Moving car manages to perfectly capture a feeling of being like 17 without being nostalgic, which is hard to do. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that was a strange lyric I had because I put that song to one side and then it was like, oh, we need it as a bonus track. So I wrote it in two days beforehand. But we take everything so seriously. We don't put anything out we don't love. So I spent two days <laughs> crafting this strange lyric, uh, like going, okay, I'm going down this alley and I don't, I don't really know, you know, I don't know what I'm writing about. I'm, I write about it and, oh, that's a lovely line. Um, that's a lovely line. And that could join this. And you just kind of start piecing it together and it starts to tell a story. Um, and then you follow the story. And then if you're lucky, you come out with a moving car. I particularly like that. After I'd written it and sung it in the studio, I contacted everybody, Charlie and the band, and went, I think moving car should be on the album. It was too late. You know, we we finished <laughs> It's sounding really good now, um, but I hadn't done a lyric to it before, so nobody had quite spotted how good it was, I think, as well. What was the last great double album, in your opinion? The Doors Live. <laughs> uh, no, the, maybe the Beatles' White Album. I don't know. One of the, you know, we're talking way back. I haven't seen many great double albums that I can remember. Yeah, very difficult for a double album. Wawa and Laid were meant to be a double album, and the record company fucked up and wouldn't let us release it as a double album. Um, that would have been interesting, like completely, we, we wanted it purposely to be completely opposite and they, the record company wouldn't have it. So they screwed us and released Wawa in America as our follow-up to Laid, which was bonkers because it was an improvised industrial album following an acoustic album, really, essentially. And you know, a million people in America bought late, but when they heard Wawa, they went, what the fuck has happened to this band? What drugs are they taking? And so it screwed us in America. That was the end of our career to some degree, or beginning of the end of our career in America. 
But Brian Eno wanted them out to double. And he that was right. Cool. cool. It would have been cool. So my final question is, say you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying it directly into the sun. What would you want to be listening to? Gosh. Birdland. Patty Smith's Birdland. Great. Probably that song. It's got great lines about take me up, 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 up. I'm helium, I'm helium. It's about a boy wanting to go up into a UFO, you know. Like it's Wilhelm Reich. It's about Wilhelm Reich, the scientist. Do you know that? Do you know oh, the yeah. scientist? It's about, you know, Kate Bush wrote the song Cloud Bursting about him as well. Um, he was a mad scientist whose uh, the government ended up putting him in prison and burning all his works in the late 50s. And his works were very interesting. Yeah. Do you know much about bioenergetics? Yeah, I know a lot about bioenergetics. Alexander Lowen? Yeah, I've been studying that the past few years. Uh, okay, you've been studying it? I've been doing the therapy. It's, it's wow. great stuff. really takes you inside. Well, there used to be an organ accumulator machine in Shield. Um, you know, I mean, and, you know, and he wrote about function of the orgasm and he wrote, you know, he, he was contacting UFOs. He tried to neutralize radio, radiation um, and the government burned all his works. You know, they didn't like that stuff. So very interesting man, Wilhelm Reich. I've read a number of books on him when I was 18, 19, because Patty Smith talked about him. So I followed the thread. Um, and Peter Reich wrote a beautiful book called The Book of Dreams about his dad. And, and that inspired Birdland because when his dad died in prison, he was in a English, he was in an American boarding school and he, and he saw a UFO and he ran across the fields night calling to it, thinking it was his dad coming to, to take him with him. And that's what the song is about. Wow. Have a listen, have a listen to that song now with new ears, <laughs> blow you away, put it on headphones completely cut everything out and listen to that song that's an improvised song and i i've i've had many bootleg improvisations one where patty smith improvises a poem beforehand which fucking is mind-blowing i'm not going to tell you what it said because it was it's it's so out there that she might get trouble for it it's like it's so out there but she was, she was dangerous, that woman. She was really bold. Well, thank you so much, Tim. This has been great. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. I, I, want, I really want to see what happens to you after you hear Birdland. <laughs> I, want, I, mean, I really hope you choose a really great moment, lie down, close your eyes, and totally, totally drop into it. Do you know the album? Not particularly, no. You don't? Okay. I think it's the best record ever made. Um, I think uh, she was a poet with Ginsburg, you know, doing readings in St. Mark's Church. And she was the up-and-coming poet. Ginsburg loved her. All of the beats loved her. And then Lenny Kay came to her and said, can I play guitar while you read poems? And she said, sure. And so for six months, it was just Lenny. Then a pianist came, Richard Soul, and said, can I play piano while you do your poems? Yeah, sure. And over two, three years, they formed a band. But that record were songs between poems and songs in a way that only Leonard Cohen has ever got close to. And they were out there. That was great. I'm a big believer in using our bodies to get in touch with our unconscious selves. And from this, there's a vast wellspring of creativity. I love Tim's story about dancing in his study at school. I remember the day I went back to college for my sophomore year and I really didn't want to be there. I was doing it to please my parents. And right after my parents dropped me off, I put on Ring the Bells by James off the Seven album and just spun and flung myself around the room until I collapsed on the bed. And it put me much more in touch with my situation and a lot of stuff started to change after that. Definitely give a listen to the new James record and remember to get the bonus tracks and see them live if you can. It's a wonderful experience. I hope they play some U.S. shows soon. A few bits of news from me. I put out a spoken word comedy album, Young Southpaws at the Movies, which you can find at youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. I've also started a Young Southpaw podcast. 
the Young Southpaw part of an hour that you can find at youngsouthpaw.com and at iTunes and Google Play. I want to give a shout out to donorschoose.org too. It's a great site where teachers post projects you can donate to to help classrooms all over the U.S. There's a lot of great ideas to help out kids in need. I'll be posting some show notes for this episode, and you can check out the other ones at www.thecounterforce.net. Please subscribe to this and the Young Southpaw stuff if you like. I'm going to leave you now with one of my favorites by James. We talked about this one in the interview, Crescendo. It's a lovely tune, and it's great how Tim gave it just what it needed with those few lines. <laughs>